1: Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack outing going, we would just like to extend the most incredible thanks to everybody for the support you've given us so far. The podcast has just passed 1 million downloads, which has completely blown our minds. So from Alex, Zach, myself, all the guys down the pub, we just want to say thank you so much. And to keep doing what you're doing, spread the word, tell your friends, like, subscribe, review. Remember, there's a Patreon. It's got its own discord channel now where there's chat and things on it there's ko-fi for dropping us a tip for an episode you'd like there's the bookshop where all the latest books from our great guests are and of course just tell everybody about us because the next million downloads we hope will come a lot quicker and who knows what is going to come up in the next year so thank you once again i'm going to stop waffling here's the show Hello and welcome to History Hacks, dedicated Second World War and a bit either side aviation podcast headhopping with me, Matt Bone. We've been off for a while, so I thought we'd come back and have a bit of fun with this one. So I've, I've asked a couple of mates to join me and we're going to just sort of put the world to rights really for a little, little while, talk about planes, talk about what's coming up on the, over the summer, general bits and pieces and see what they've both been up to because we've had them both on the show before. I'm delighted to be welcomed or welcoming even Adam Berry and Matt Willis back to the show. So Adam, you remember we had on with um, Seb and we talked about how the uh, 9th Troop Carrier Command were fantastic and everything that's been said about the worst trained pilots dropping the best trained soldiers was complete pants, which was good fun. And then we had Matt Willis, who brought us all up to speed with Allison Engine Mustangs. And I am a complete convert to the fact that they're the business now. So we'll start with Adam. How are you doing, sir? It's been a while.
2: I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, I'm very well. How are you?
1: I'm good. I, I say it's a while. We were at the Grand Prix together last year. We've so seen each other ago, since, since that. then.
2: <laughs> that was a while ago now. Um, it's, yeah. near, well, it's nearly a year ago now. So uh, getting, getting close to a year ago now.
1: Yeah, oh, It's scary how time yeah. plays. Mm. And Matt, it's been even longer. But how are you keeping? Mm. You, sir?
3: Yeah, not bad. Um, tired, post viral fatigue and stuff, and uh, lots of deadlines. But um, apart from that, uh, plugging away. I was in the Lake District recently, so uh, you know always. Anything's helped by going up a mountain, so that's nice.
1: How's the dog?
3: Yeah, the dog's good. These guys, two speeds, full and stop. So that's fun. He's, he's going racing at the weekend. So that'll be nice.
1: Fantastic. I'm keen for this one because you guys have been really busy because, you know, Matt seems to be every week you've got an article out. Adam, you've got <laughs> volume two of your Magnum Opus due shortly and it's sort of volume two and a half, isn't it? Because you has got extra bits on it. Let's, yeah. let's start with you, Adam. How has volume two come? Tell us about it. When do we get to see it? And it will remind me to go away and buy volume one.
2: Uh, when do you get to see it? That is, you know, that's the sort of how long's a piece of string cut type question. Because I have been a little bit lapse on my side of working on that book. Because um, as I'm sure you're aware, Matt, means mean, so far, having an extension at home and I lost my office for a while. So having somewhere comfortable to work on the book has been difficult. But uh, luckily for me, obviously, we. So I co-author the book with a, a Dutch guy called Hans, who is, in my opinion, just about as knowledgeable as a, a, an individual can be on um, on, a, on a specific subject, which is troop carrier operations, particularly during the uh, Market Garden. So he's been doing an awful lot of legwork on it. He's been essentially putting together the chapters, but because he is Dutch, and although his, his English is is very very good, it it takes me going in and you know reworking the chapters adding bits in there that make it more readable for somebody that's not necessarily into you know the 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 nitty-gritty details of the history of nine troop carrier command things like quotes and veteran testimonies and things like that that bring the story to life a little bit and uh, and ultimately editing the book into something that can be published the the difficulty we had with volume one was that we got we got so many photos from veterans, families, from veterans, from the archives, 70, 75% of which had never been published before, that we, we had a very hard time picking and choosing what photos went into the book. And there are a lot of photos, actually, that we, we took out of the book that, in, in an ideal scenario, we would have left in. With volume two... We've got that problem, but worse, essentially. We've got such an incredible collection, talking in the region of maybe two, two and a half thousand images that were taken of, so volume two will be 53rd troop carrier wing. So for anyone who lives down in the sort of Wiltshire, Berkshire area, they were all based around that area of, uh, of England. And picking it again, picking and choosing what content we put in there is proving very difficult. So as you alluded to, it could potentially end up being two books sold as one um, because we don't want to detract from the quality of uh, the context, uh, content of the book by, you know, chopping bits out. We want to be able to, you know, really showcase what these guys did. We're working on that at the moment. I'll say, you know, we don't really know when it'll come out. We really want it to be this year. Um, but there's a lot of work to do. In the meantime, I've been working on a, on a then and now book of uh, Troop Carrier Command in the UK, which, again, I've been working on with hands to try and bring in some of the photos that were excluded from Volume 1 and some of the photos that will be excluded from Volume 2 of these guys out on furlough in the UK, London, Nottingham, uh, Newbury, Reading, all these sorts of places. Uh, and as a then and now book does, showing comparison tho- photographs of what the places look like now. And they seem to be, theme-wise, quite popular books. So we thought, you know, why not? We'll have a bit of fun with that whilst we're working on the um, on volume two, because it's there's a bit a little bit more of a relaxed process behind, uh, you know, putting that sort of book together. And plus, I I find it very fun falling down a very very deep rabbit hole of trying to figure out where certain photographs were taken by traipsing around the country on essentially Google Street View until we find the right spot, which is often successful, often not, but it's been, it's been fun nonetheless.
1: That sounds really good. Looking forward to that. Another thing to nag you about for when, when you're going to give me an update (laughs) for it. But Matt, I, goodness, what haven't you been doing? It seems (laughs) you've, you've, you've been terribly busy. Swordfish book's due. The Mustang book's getting reprinted in a couple months.
3: Yeah.
1: And as, as we've all now received our copies of Aeroplane for next month, you've done the most incredible database at the back of it for sort of British aviation from 1952 to now. So pick one, sell it. And- <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, okay, okay. Well, um, I, I mean, I ought to sell the the Swordfish book because that's the one that, that will have royalties but you know the aeroplane one I, I think the uh, I'm actually really quite proud of that I'm generally happy with with everything I do for aeroplane I'm quite quite lucky to to be able to do quite a lot of stuff for them this year but the database was um Ben Donnell um sort of came to me with the idea of saying we'll do something a little bit uh a little bit uh, different for the database for this month, because this issue is the, the Platinum Jubilee issue, um, and that's kind of the main theme. For those who are not familiar with, with Aeroplane, the database is usually a feature or a series of features on a single uh, aircraft type, so um, a potted history of the, the aircraft type, but not that potted, because, you know, usually you're talking about uh, sort of, say, Eight eight thousand words around uh, about that on uh, on the entire history of a particular aircraft type, but Ben came came to me and said uh, we'd like to do something on the the whole British aviation industry from 1952 to the present, and and being a naive idiot, I said uh, yeah that sounds interesting. Um, And, you know, it was a hell of a lot of work, as you'd imagine, different kind of style of work to usual because it's it's quite broad, but necessarily has to be quite shallow because you have to, to cover a hell of a lot. And it was really interesting, actually, being able to take that step back. And look at things from a broader perspective than you would normally be able to, and actually start sort of looking at the whole story and and stories within the main story and following threads through. So you know things like air to air missiles from the from the from the outset, and uh, you know the, the development of rotorcraft and um, airliners and all the sort of you know because the usual thing is I think the thing that to, to sort of sum sum it up, if it's possible to do so. The view that a lot of people have is is basically one of decline and that it started out in the 50s when, you know, Britain was a great aircraft aviation nation, able to compete with anyone in the world. And we were doing everything. We were doing everything from, you know, military aircraft, airliners, uh, rotorcraft. There wasn't anything we didn't do. We did it all ourselves. And then after that, there was, you know, horrible governments that cancel things and, you know, could have things that could have been world beaters. <laughs> two or two and then were, <laughs> were you know, s- terribly short-sightedly killed by appalling politicians and stuff like that. And the view I think I came to was that it's a lot more complicated than that. It, it's There are areas of withdrawal from certain areas of the, the industry and areas that we've kind of got out of as a country that, that maybe we didn't need to and, didn't, and shouldn't have done. But on the other hand, some of the sort of technology that's, that's now coming through and the way the united kingdom fits into other projects it's really kind of top of the top of the game and it's sort of specialization and and development and evolution in certain through certain paths and you know uk has taken one path and countries like france and so on have taken different ones and i don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that so yeah it was an interesting an interesting process kind of trying to, to step back and put all of that
1: together so that's in the june issue of of airplane magazine and it's yeah, it's great. There's some you get the rotor dyed in there, which is always always good to, to squeeze into any any discussion. Mm. You kindly sent us it yesterday. We both, Adam and I, had a little little flick through. It, it's when you say comprehensive, yeah, it's it, it's a bit, it's a big old read. So I haven't it had is. the time to sit down mm. with a cup of tea yet. But I've picked out a few bits. You've got you know, fire streaks on javelins in there. Mm. Um, the the bit that I'm he's, if you can hear me clicking in the background, it's because I'm trying to find it, and it's. Like 23 <laughs> 25 pages of of yeah. good content there's, people.
3: there's about 12, i think there's probably about about sort of it's probably more than 12 000 words actually it's a good it's a good old chunk of text and lots of pictures which obviously you know aeroplanes got such a great archive and they're able to source photos from from uh from everywhere else as well so it's you know it's really well illustrated as they they always do in in my uh, you know not entirely unbiased view, but but yeah, you know it's a kind of it's a good one to keep. I think I hope it will be a half decent reference for people in the in the future as well because it's uh, it doesn't miss much out. I don't think despite obviously being a it's not a full book by any stretch of the imagination, but you know we covered a lot of ground. It's, de- it's definitely a keeper.
2: You know, often with these magazines, you find that some sort of them are a little bit uh, you know once you've read them. You've read them, but this one's definitely a keeper. Mm. I'm glad to hear that.
1: It, yeah, it, it is. I subscribe to it because I like it, and that's not, that's not just because yeah, they got me to write something from. But um, mm-hmm. it's um, yeah, no, it's 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 a sup- superb. I'm going to enjoy delving into that a little bit more because you you also had that excellent one about the um, dear old Mister Gray and his slagging off of the Soviet long distance attempt last month. Yeah. Wild.
3: Um, well, that was, I mean, that, that one kind of started with when they did the anniversary piece for Aeroplane, which I now can't remember whether that was last year or the year before, um, but it was, Ben again asked me to do a piece on on CG Grey and his politics, which um, I think, you know, I'm quite grateful to Ben for having the faith in me to tackle that, uh, that very sensitive subject. Um, but to, be, one to, be, that- to
1: be fair, you'd think the editor of Aeroplane would step up to write. An article about the editor of Airplane, wouldn't you? But, well,
3: you know, <laughs> they, they, they. Uh, this was a, it was a, it was a piece within a piece. So it was the, um, again, the the database that month was was on the history of, of Airplane magazine, and and Arthur Ord Hume uh, was doing it. it. was, you know, I can't think of anyone better to do the overall piece. But one of the bits that you know I didn't really touch on in the end because there was more of it in the main article was this whole business of of Gray challenging the legitimacy of the, uh, the, the long-distance record that the Russians had made in, uh, in the Tupolev Ant-25 aircraft, which involved the sort of transpolar flights, which were quite sort of dramatic flights at the time, where, you know, nobody had, had made these flights directly over the pole, which is obviously now a commonly used route um, across continents. But uh, this was sort of pioneering stuff. For that reason and for the the record setting and they went to gray and and he had his team go to some qu- quite extreme lengths to, to prove to prove that this um, couldn't be possible and the, you know they, they looked at the mathematics and they had papers from the um, National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics in the States you know which were all kind of enlisted in the service of, of proving that these aircraft weren't capable of, of making the flights and I, so I kind of thought well, yeah, that's kind of been left hanging because the, um, the FAI at the time decided that the records were, were legit. The various other countries were kind of, you know, pretty much recognized them straight away. But a lot of that, I think, was on the fact that, as, as Gray pointed out, you know, quite a lot of it is done on trust and that it, it requires, like, the, the main aero club of the country concerned to, um, to do certain things to validate the record. And there was a question of whether you could trust uh, what was essentially an authoritarian regime to be trustworthy over these things. But of course, you know, Gray didn't mind at all when it was Nazi Germany or fascist Italy that was um, carrying out uh, record flights. Because he had some, um, frankly, his views were uh, you know, offbeat, even by the standards of the time. And, you know, he had some really out there views, uh, which, you know, makes him quite controversial as a figure because he's so important to the foundation of the aviation media in the uk uh, and really and the, the 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 establishment of aviation generally you know in the early days he was he was really quite uh, influential but he was a frightful bigot and uh, he had some hideous views and i think it's it's actually sort of you know it's quite good that the airplane is you know they're not trying to hide that they're, they're actually engaging with that uh, as a subject and i think that's uh because, you know, the magazine was always political when Gray was in charge, and he made it that way. People say, take the politics out of aviation history and stuff. Was like, well, sorry, you know, can't do that. So, you know, trying to do that in a kind of sensitive and balanced way. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to be able to explore things in that way rather than just, you know, nuts and bolts and um, top trumps.
1: And, and anything on Gray is catnip to me because he's, hmm. <laughs> he's... He's he's such a weirdo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that's... Uh... That that's that's a whole other show, but um, and of course swordfishes, which you're, yeah, you know, boat boat boaty kind of boaty planes, which mm. we mm. try to stay away from. That's that, that one's been a little while in the coming now, hasn't it?
3: Yeah, it has. It was it was due to come out. God, when was it? It was basically uh, delayed by the first lockdown because the the publisher Tempest Books anticipated that there would be um rightly so that there will be sort of you know logistical issues with that so so that and another book that I'm working on um got uh, they they made the decision early to to put those back and then obviously they got and then they got into a queue with other stuff that I was working on and and that the publisher was working on so uh, so that has been a little bit of time but uh, I'm expecting that by the end of the month and actually it was lucky, it was good to have the delay because it enabled me to um, to include stuff that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise, uh, not least interview materials with what must have been one of the last surviving operational swordfish aircrew, uh, an observer by the name of um, Brian Riley, who's, who's sadly no longer with us, um, but I was able to to you know probably got about sort of maybe 12 or 14 hours of interview material with him a tiny fraction of that which makes it into the swordfish book because he was on Mac ships and you know really interesting career that, that he was uh, he was on Mac ships in the atlantic and then switched to was kind of suddenly switched to avengers and then ended up in uh, in the pacific in an avenger so i'm not sure how many people fought in both the battle of the the battle of the Atlantic and in the uh, the, the the Pacific war as well so yeah and, you know he was he was in the thick of the, uh, the Sakashima Gunto raids so uh, yeah I managed to, to get some uh, some some additional material from him and it's also the first book in which I I do the artwork as well as the text and sourcing all the photographs and things like that so the uh, the profile artwork there'll be 16 um, 16 profiles uh, done by myself so i'll be interested to see how people receive those because i haven't uh haven't had any examples of that that kind of work
1: published yet fantastic so yeah goodness you have been a busy boy haven't you <laughs> tell me about it <laughs> <laughs> let's get on to let's get on to the summer because it's it's our first summer in a couple of years where stuff is properly happening. And um, we we're, were chatting about this a little bit before, we're sort of knocking around with yeah, projects that are that are going on, air shows. And of course, we've got some interesting looking films coming out. But I thought, Adam, let's, let's start with you. What sort of top of your hit list besides returning to Silverstone for reasons that I will not be joining you for this year, but I'm sure it'll be fantastic.
2: <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, I'd love to get back to air shows. I missed them. Tremendously last year, uh, last year, and was it the year before we didn't have any as well? Obviously, very gutted about the situation with uh, Flying Legends because, you know, Flying Legends is what it is. It's uh, for those of us that are into the uh, older style of aircraft, then it's, you know, one of the go to air shows. So it's disappointing to see that there's not been the plans put in place, I I believe, to move it to Sywell sort of seem to have fallen down. Other than that, I'm um, I'm I'm airshow wise. I'm sort of keeping my eyes open. I mean, the Victory Show is going ahead again, which is local to me, and that is usually a pretty good show for flying. I don't know the ins and outs of it really, but I get the impression that some of the limitations that get put on aircraft at air shows don't necessarily apply to um, to the uh, to the Victory Show. Um, obviously they're not allowed to fly with the flight line but you get up close and personal with the aircraft, you see them landing on a grass strip, which is uh, you know nice and close, which is not very often you get to, to see Second World War aircraft landing on a grass strip um, it certainly makes for good photographs so I'm looking forward to that but otherwise, yeah, I mean I'll keep my, my sort of, you know, ear open to, um, to what, what, what's going on and uh, if I'm around I'll, um, I'll try and make weight
1: Whatever I can. Yeah, I've, I've not got anything booked up myself yet. So, I'm hoping to pop up to Shuttleworth for a couple because they, they always, they always put a good show as well. Matt, are you, have you got anything lined up? Are you,
3: are you? yeah, I'm due to, well, I'm, I'm um, due to go to React, uh, which I haven't been mm-hmm. to for, you know, a good few years. And obviously, that's not been on for, for a couple of years so it's uh, be interesting to see what they do manage to uh, um, to get together for that you know disappointing that uh, Yeovilton Air Day is not happening this year for I think for financial reasons they've said which you know is, is not uh, not terribly surprising but it is it, it's a pity because I've I've been um, last last the last couple of examples of that I was actually there with the with the Ferry Barracuda restoration um, team rather than as a spectator. But it's, it's you know, it's good to go to anyway. Always a great static display there as well. And um, so it's a, it's a shame, hopefully, that'll be back next year. See with the you know, loss of Caldros in the last uh, little while as well. That's, uh, you know, a shame to not have the Obelton this year. But yeah, React um, should be interesting. But other than that, I'm, again, not really booked in for much this year, but hoping to... Um, I've done one of the um, threshold Aero photo shoots, which was I've done more of them than air shows in the last uh, the last few years. Actually, a, a sort of you know although there's no actual flying, it, it's actually a good and different way to get sort of you know up close to operating aircraft and you know get interesting things thrown in with reenactors and things like that. So uh, you know there was some uh, you know lovely to see the new uh, the newly restored Max Holst Max Holst Broussard at uh, Uh, Oaksie Park recently which uh, hoping to see that on the display circuit this this season as well that's a lovely aeroplane and quite a quite a rarity so uh, nice to see that kind of spitting blue exhaust flames in the uh, um, you know in front of a starry sky so uh, yeah I love that kind of thing. Fantastic.
1: Let's get on to projects you've mentioned the Barracuda but I'm going to go to Adam because there's one project we've been watching that they're starting to kit kit things out in a in a big way with with charlie's night fright aren't they yeah
2: i was going to mention actually um a minute ago that obviously that's probably fingers crossed i spoke to charlie recently about where they stand with the project and you know it, it feels like there's been sort of stops and starts with it but he's hopeful that they'll get it in the air this year so that's that's huge because as you know it's uh you know, okay, there's there's plenty of C-47s that are airworthy. There's plenty of C-47s that are airworthy with, with a great history behind them, but the project in general with uh, with Charlie and, and the team that are restoring Night Fright, the, 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 the details that they are going, the lengths they're going to, to make it potentially the, the most original C-47 flying, it's mind-blowing. I mean, aside from the the instruments that they're sort of legally obliged to put in the cockpit, they are, it's, it's going to be about as original as they come, really. Um, I know they're having issues with obtaining the correct floor, but <laughs> <laughs> which seems, which to the, you know, to anyone who doesn't really, really care, doesn't seem like a great a great deal, but there was a difference between the type of floor that the night fright would have had and the type of floor that's sort of readily available from a lot of the, the post-war modded C-47s, and, and they want the real floor, which is commendable. They want it to be um, as original as possible. And, of course, the fact that it will fly out of memory as well, its wartime home, is incredibly unique. The conversation with a number of people, and I can't really think of another warbird that that, that does that or will, you know, is in a position to fly out of the airfield it flew from operationally during World War II. And having seen the plans they've got in place for what they want to do with memory, you know, with the museum, um, I don't want to say too much, but I know that Charlie's looking at another aircraft as well. Hopefully, it'll be it'll be kind of a bit like an East Kirkby, but for um, but for, for troop carrier for troop carrier stuff, which would which would be great. Hopefully, it'll be a little bit like uh, stepping back in time. You know, fingers crossed they can get it in the air this year, and um, and hopefully I'll get to have a little ride on it. that will be great.
1: Yeah, he he did mention that to me as well. So I I need to to touch base with him today. He doesn't doesn't forget. It's just
2: all these little gentle reminders every now and then, but uh, he did actually say
1: that. (laughs) um, I think I have him him recorded saying it as well, which I didn't (laughs) use in the podcast. So I'm going to hold that against him.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's exciting stuff.
1: And and Matt, the Barracuda Project have been posting Mm. some really, really cool things recently. Have you been speaking to them? Well, I guess you would have been, wouldn't you? But how, how are they getting on?
3: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing well. I mean, it's it's um, obviously slow going because of the nature of the, um, the, the project. Uh, and obviously, COVID, it hit them like it hit everyone else. But, you know, they've been getting back into it and, you know, working on it piece by piece. And it's only a small team working on it, but they're dedicated and they're doing, you know, they have the... Their weekly updates on Facebook, which are um, you know a, a reason, one reason not to delete Facebook. And although to be honest, you can look at the updates even if you're not, uh, even if you don't have an account. I think, but you know, it, it's the level of detail they're working to is just absolutely fabulous, and the the way they're able to take these kind of you know bent and corroded and totally messed up original components and and create out of them something that that is incredibly original and yet looks Pretty much like new and doing this at, you know at the level of an individual component that's uh, so, so, you know inches across and so you know it'll be a long time before we see something that looks like a an airplane, but it, it is uh, coming together and I think they made a decision a little while ago that the the intention from the outset was that this was going to be dp872 which is the bolton paul built barracuda which had crashed into a well it's often described as a peat bog it actually wasn't a peat bog it was uh you know kind of the shore of a boggy area the shore of a lake and um that that, that it would be as original to dp872 as possible as possible and uh, they use as much of dp872 and obviously this kind of it creates its own problems um because if you've got kind of if you've got kind of a, you know, battered, you know, terribly corroded piece from DP872, uh, you know, it takes some work to, to get that back to a, a usable condition. Whereas you might have a much better example from a different Barracuda wreck, or you might be able to fabricate something from new. And I know there was an ex- a couple of examples where they'd, they'd had some tubes fabricated because they're, you know, you can't get that spec commercially anymore. And then, they got this wreck up from the Solent and that had examples of original ones on. So it was like, well, yes we've got these nice new ones, but we want this to be as original as possible. So we will work on the original fabric. So I think they've made a decision that it will be more of that it will be more of a kind of slightly more of a generic rebuild than the very very specific restoration of dp 872 but that said they are still have the the intention to make it as original as as reasonably possible within the um the sort of time and resources that they have available and i think you know the, the stuff they've done already is is remarkable on that but i think they've got slightly more focus now on okay we need to we need to get a barracuda out of this rather than just lots of really cool components. But, you know, it's, it's, they're doing such a fantastic job on it and it's, you know, when you go to the museum, go to the fleet air arm museum, they're there and you can go and see them working on it uh, at certain days of the week. So, uh, you know, I recommend, uh, recommend doing that as well as following them on, on Facebook, but it's all this stuff that you see when they're doing a restoration, you won't see when the aircraft is finished. Um, so, you know, it's worth kind of following this to sort of the the you know, I'm learning I've I've written a book on the barracuda and I've learned so much stuff about the the internal structures and systems that I just didn't get into when writing the book. So, you know, it it's uh you know that one's awesome.
1: Great. I've just been having beers with Tony Hoskins about AA810. So that's that's the one that's sort of on on my mind. And that's um yes, keep 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 an eye out on Tony's various feeds for that because there's lots of cool news coming up for that one, which, of course, being a great escape pilot in it, and we might even mention one of her 810's other pilots a bit later when we talk about racing pilots. But let's crack on, because we've got some movies coming up this summer as well. There's the big one, which, frankly, I'm stupidly excited for, which has got nothing to do with Second World War. Well, it does, actually. It's Top Gun 2, which... Apparently it's just incredible. Now, the reason I actually really want to see it is I want to figure out how they work in a a naval aviator or naval aviators' pay getting a Mustang. And why would a naval aviator have an Air Force fighter and not a yeah, you know, Hellcat or okay? So that's gotta be a pull-up point they sort sort out for me. Mm. But but of course it's 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 Tom's Mustangs, so who's going to get it in for tax purposes, isn't he? Am I alone in being like stupidly excited about this, or are you guys kind of keen?
2: Yeah, I'm, look, I'm looking forward to it. Top, the original Top Gun for me is, is uh, if it's on, watch it type film. And there's not many that I can say that about Forrest Gump being another. And uh, because of my age, Ghostbusters being, uh, being another, which is slightly different themes. But Top Gun is a, uh, yeah, if, if it's on, watch it. I'm a huge, huge fan of the F 14. So it's a little bit gutting that obviously the new one, we're moving to a, a different aircraft altogether. One that I must admit, I've never, I've never really been too enamored with. It's not quite it hit me the same way that the Tomcat did when the, when the original Top Gun came out. But that said, having seen what I've seen, some of the flying scenes in it look absolutely mind-blowing. I've been told that it's going to be better than the original. It's, it's got to go some way to being better than the original. But if, if, if it is, then great. So yes, uh, you know, no, you're not
3: alone. I am very much looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, me too. Um, And I think also, also, I'm a big Hornet fan, uh, and you know, uh, because you know, I'm a weirdo and a contrarian. I'm more of a Hornet fan than a uh, Tomcat
1: fan. And thank Um, you very much for joining us, Matt. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show.
3: Oh, God, you're not going to like what I have to say about the Tomcat in the uh, the Hush Kit podcast, but we won't talk about that. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm basically going to torpedo my entire career with that podcast, so, you know... Um, I'll, I, well, it's, yeah, it's, I'll it's, it's
1: Joe, you won't be the, the first and you won't be the last to, to do no, a career no. on Hush Kit, will you? <laughs> <laughs> it's
3: taken me this time to, to build it up again after the last time. And Anyway, yeah, no, and, and just, you yeah, know, like you say like you say adam the 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 in the, the in-flight stuff the air-to-air stuff just looks phenomenal and uh, you know i'm i'm a being a kind of a cinephile and a, a vfx fan and also a real kind of you know i love physical vfx uh, you know special effects done for real physical you know, physical stuff actually you're doing real things with real airplanes and it just looks like you know even if the story's crap the characters you can't engage with what have you even you know any any of that it'll just be worth watching so yeah i will have to try and i I will no doubt watch it several times with different hats on and probably try and see it several times on as big a screen as possible to be honest
1: yeah i'm 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 hoping to go with one of our down the pub jess Guest judges Simon London to, to see it on the, the IMAX at Waterloo because I think as, as as big a screen as you can, even if it you know don't don't wait for it on your telly, folks. Get out and mm. get out and see it on something on something big. The other thing that I think will look really good on the big screen is the Lancaster documentary, which has been another yep. thing that's been a long time coming. Personally, I'm not sure. I had real. Uh, I'm getting, of course I'm going to say this. I had real problems with the Spitfire one. I thought it was a little bit too misty eyed for what it could be, but from some of the clips, especially with the, um, there's um, Elsa, the German lady that they've got talking about the experience of of being a civilian in Germany during a raid. I think they've, it looks more, I don't don't want to say rounded. I haven't seen it yet. I've just seen the trailers, but I, I think, I think there's just from that, it seems that they've taken a little bit more of a 360 view, which, which I'm looking forward to. It looks fantastic. I think that's.
0: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner in nature, art, science, culture, history. We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I, ha- I actually haven't seen the Spitfire one, largely because just so much about the Spitfire lacks nuance. And I just got the impression from the trailers that it was just going to be pretty much the sort of same. You know, it's it's got to the point where it's it's about the legend rather than about the reality and it's interesting you hear to, to hear you say that the, the lancaster one it sounds like they haven't done that so much i mean it's not quite the aircraft doesn't quite have the same sort of mythos well it does have quite a big one but it, you know it's i think because of the nature of what it is and what it did it's 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 a little bit harder to mythologize in quite the same way so uh, so that sounds interesting yeah. and some of the just just the again the the aerial footage that they've that they've got from it and uh, uh, and so on just looks just gorgeous. So um, yeah. yeah, I mean, in,
2: in the uh, in the trailer, there's a scene of the uh, the BBMF Lank taking off towards camera. And uh, I've always been of the opinion that that the the frontal view of a Lancaster is is when it looks most awesome. You know, it just mm. looks like a it's it's the best view. And I think that that scene alone is uh, is worth watching. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll uh, obviously I'll, I'll watch it if it's about Lancaster. I'll watch it, um, but yeah, hopefully it'll be pretty good.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I'm 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 with you, Matt. There's the nature of the aircraft leads to needing to tell a more nuanced story, whereas the the, the, the Spitfire is the Spitfire. To, to be fair, the Spitfire doc is basically the documentary that they made if you'd only ever seen First of the Few right yeah, the, the, <laughs> they 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 draw they draw that line and it's very sort of stirring scores and yeah you know, and jeff Wellum. you can you can't watch jeff without smiling cuz you know, mm, mm, jeff true but, true yeah. but oh. it's um yeah it, it does does what you expect it to do now i did send you the link to a trailer which i found the other day for a very i've just called it odd spitfire movie in our notes <laughs> because it's, it's done by the guys that did Lancaster Skies, which, again, wasn't great, but for the budget that they had, was quite quite impressive for what they've done. So they've done the same sort of thing again with a, a PRU Spitfire. Mm-hmm. And I I sent it just for the thing, because I also sent it to to, to Tony Hoskins, and, and he just went, yeah, I've been watching that, because um, it's literally his his bag. But I was just wondering, we're just talking about trailers here, folks. So if you're bored, you know, come back in a couple of minutes. I like what this team is doing on a teeny tiny budget. Granted, I think they should spend more time on the script based on the trailer. But I was wanting to get your sort of feelings for the these little passion projects, which you know the the internet and, and and these things get allow us. What are sort of your feelings for for something like that?
3: I wanted to like this. I don't. I mean, and I will watch the film. I'd say I wanted to like. Lancaster skies, but I couldn't. I couldn't finish watching it. I probably should have. I didn't get to the point. I presume they go flying in a Lancaster at some point and do some operations. I didn't actually get that far. But you know, talking about the passion projects, the the one I would really want to flag up is the Lano Hawker film, which is uh, you know it's being made with David Bremner, his his Bristol Scout. They've done some great. They've you know they've got a mock up Bristol Scout that they've got on a gimbal and used that for filming. And some of the stuff that you know there there are clips. Around that actually look really good, and the quality looks amazing, and some good model work as well. So I would I would kind of encourage people to to seek that one out. Uh, a bit of First World War air combat. Yeah, I don't know if that's the finished um, CGI that's on the Spitfire film because it it looked <laughs> yeah. a little unfinished to me just on the on the small screen. So I don't know how it's going to look in in the real. Thing, but as, as someone who does Second World War fiction as well as the non-fiction stuff, it, it's you know, I, I I do want more stuff, more stuff like this. I like it to be done really well, and I just have sl- well, you know, I don't I don't want to slag it off before the films come out. I'll keep an eye on it, and you know, and some of the some of the stuff they've got like the, the Spitfire cockpit and the the clothing and stuff like that looks 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 done well. So um, fingers crossed. <laughs>
1: It, think it's called Spitfire Over Berlin, by the way. It's it's not called odd Spitfire movie. So don't don't go googling that. You'll find something very strange. Sorry, Adam. I was gonna no.
2: I was gonna say. I think that they're um. I, I think that they're more, regardless of well. You can live with some of the quality if there's there's the right sort of passion there um, and a willingness from the people who made it to, you know, really. Delve deep into researching whatever it is that they're they're theming it on, um, you know. And it looks like these guys have gone have done a reasonable job with that. From what you know, you can see in the trailer. Um, a friend of mine sent me a link a week or so ago to a um, a film. It's slightly off topic, but it's about the, the second Ranger Battalion landing at uh, Pointe de Hoc in um, in Normandy on D-Day. And uh, it is mind-blowingly atrocious. It's um, it's borderline mm. comedy, you know. Kit-wise, e- everything you can think of, wise. It's and evidently something like that is created with the the frame of mind that somebody just decided that they wanted to. You know, they might make other a genre as a film, and they might have decided they wanted to make a war film. Whereas with you know with some of these, like you say, passion projects, you can tell that there is some real passion for what they're doing there. And uh, and some, some actual effort has gone into researching them and making sure that everything they do kit-wise and, you know, dialogue-wise is, is is pretty accurate. Because, you know, dialogue's a huge thing in these things. You know, people, you know, it sounds like a weird thing to say, people talk differently to how we do now. An, ex- an example I was told the other day, which is, again, going slightly off topic, was during the filming of Masters of the Air, which, of course, is something else, but hopefully we may see this year. I think the plan is to see it this year. They were using a Vietnam-era way of referring to lieutenants on set, a way which was never used during the Second World War. And uh, it was picked up by a historical advisor. And uh, the producer or the director who was filming the scenes in which this dialogue was used had an entire day's worth of shots reshot using the correct dialogue, which is what you want to hear on something like this, because, you know, these things, these little details make all the difference, really, at the end of the day. So, yeah, if if people are willing to put that time in and, you know, really, really do their research, then they can be, you know, you can kind of look beyond the the quality or, you know, any of the sort of CGI on there.
3: Mm. No, that's fair, actually. And also, I think the one thing I did want to say was, the fact that it's a photo reconnaissance Spitfire, and the story is based around photo reconnaissance rather than um, rather than air combat, is actually you know uh, definite points for them for um, for doing that part of the story and telling something that's sort of yeah, it's a Spitfire, but it's it's mm. not your average Spitfire. And uh, I would say you know th- things like, I think what 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 put me off slightly about Lancaster skies was you know things like the. You know, having WAFs just wandering around at the men's accommodation on an RAF station and things like that in 1942 and understand why they would do it for the narrative. But, um, you know, things like that, you just, just look at it and it's hard to suspend disbelief with things like that. There are other much bigger productions that have done worse. So yeah. um,
1: it, it is what it is. Yeah, I think Masses of the Sky is
0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Is is the big one? I yeah, I'm going to name drop here. I was at an event and I was chatting to John Orloff and he broke out his iPhone and started showing me pictures. And the the two B17s that they've made are actually they're taxable, but they're like big remote control things Mm. it's it's so cool this is literally like a guy with like an airplane remote controller and he's just driving the the b-17s around on it with these big electric motors on the wheels it's um but then you you sort of zooming into what detail they put on to the static aircraft and then the um the the whole cockpit that they can sort of expand out sections of to put cameras it looks incredible which you would kind of expect from the insane amounts of money Mm. apple paying on it
2: yeah, I mean I'm I'm lucky enough to know a few people that have worked on the on on behind the scenes on there as historical advisors and had a conversation on the phone with one three or four weeks ago. And I voiced a concern that it would be maybe a little bit like Band of Brothers and sort of play with the history a little bit because there were rumors around about certain things they were trying to do which wouldn't be historically, you know, accurate for it. And I essentially sort of said to him, you know. Ease my mind a bit. Tell me that it's it's going to be good, and um and he said he said you know it is going to be very very good. And this guy knows his stuff, and he's uh, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying so. Very hard to please when it comes to the sort of historical accuracy in films. So for him to say that it's, uh, you know, it's a bit more reassuring. And like you know, like you, Matt, we've, I've seen some incredible photos of some of the set dressing, and as I say, the the the, the mock up B17s. And also, if you take a look at aerial photographs of the area around the tower, at the real four pavots, the detail they've gone into in placement of the buildings and everything around the tower for it, it's, you know, it's exactly, exactly right, which they don't often do on, on, on things like this because I, I suppose they don't really think it matters. I, d- I wouldn't want to say it again on here, but having heard what the rumoured spend has been, it's absolutely, you know, it boggles the mind the amount of money that's been spent on it. So, hopefully, it'll be worth
3: it. Yep, it, it looks it looks something. I was going to say, have we seen the the production that uh, Shoot Aviation was was working on with their Bouchons and and Messerschmitt one hundred and eight in desert camouflage? Because I'm whatever the hell that was. I'm really really interested to see it.
1: That that uh, might be the SAS thing. The that's what on. I heard, yeah. yeah. That's what I yeah. heard.
2: And I believe that's out now. Has it started? Rogue I mean, SAS is called, isn't
1: it? I think. Uh, um, yeah. Some along the lines of Yeah, I'll keep an eye out for that then. Rogue Warriors, isn't it? That's that's the one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's have a this is this is great radio, folks. All of us googling when this thing's out. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I
3: should, have, I should have all these things that I could, should have thought of before. Um, it's so yeah, it, I, I, I don't one. think.
1: I don't think. It, I don't think it is out yet. Um, anyways, it's it's soon, but it's yeah. It's yeah. The, the Ben McIntyre Empire rolling on with yeah you know, Operation Mincemeat Meet in the cinemas, which I haven't seen, and from what I've heard, I don't need to see. Um, uh, oh dear!
2: And, and, I haven't actually read any reviews or, or seen any opinions on that film yet. Um, but it doesn't sound positive. <laughs> I've, I've got I've got the book.
1: The book was good. Yeah, I read it on a flight. It's it's it's, it's not not particularly uh, hard going. Um,
3: Honestly, I'll just sort of uh, say at this point that if anyone wants to make a. Um, an adaptation of my Malta trilogy, then, you know, I don't care if you ruin it, just make it. you Yeah. Well, you know, I don't even care about that either. I just want to see it on the screen. Mm.
1: I, I, here you go. One, one of, one of my favorite second world war based movies is, is Malta's story. I, I, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it's the most un Guinness Alec Guinness performance Ever because he's he's so restrained but it just it's, it's fun anyways we, we, we must move on books anything got you you both have stuff coming up, but are you looking forward to actually reading anything that's for pleasure i would like to read something for pleasure but this podcast means I have a stack of books I need <laughs> to read to, to talk to good people like yourself
3: same really yeah i'm i'm not i uh, yeah i would love to read something for pleasure i can't remember the last time I did to be honest with you I'm probably going to pick up just because of my love for
2: all things US Airborne. I'm probably going to pick up the book about Ron Spears because judging by um, the interview with the authors that uh, that our friend Paul Woodage did on his uh, World War II TV, it sounds like it's it's quite um, revealing in terms of some of the stories that were made famous through Band of Brothers and his portrayal in Band of Brothers. So, but for me, that will be a, you know, hopefully that'll just be, a, you know, an easy reader. That'll just be um, something, like you say, that I read for my enjoyment more than anything. I Like, like you guys, I've not read anything. The, the amount of books, I'm sure it's the same with you guys, the amount of books I've got on shelves that are half-read, post posted notes hanging out of them is alarming. And my wife is often saying to me, how many of these books have you actually read? And it's it's most of them, but define what you mean by reading. Do you mean having read the whole thing or, you know, read a couple of pages um, You know, so but yeah, I, I, that's the only one
1: really at the moment that I'm I'm
2: contemplating um, buying a copy of.
1: I I actually read something for fun the other month, I went back and reread uh, Goodbye Mickey Mouse. Oh, such a good book! Yeah, yeah, it's I I I must have been a teenager when I read it last time, and it superb, superb book. Yeah, um, you, you're, lo- you're lost on me, me with that one. Right, uh, Len, Len Dayton about a, a, a group of um, P-51 pilots.
3: Oh, right, okay. It, oh, well, I'll have to look it up.
1: It's not a hard read at all. Um, yeah. You'll polish it off quite quickly, but it, it's... Um, I, I,
2: I tell a lie, there is another book that's not new, but I do want to get a hold of, and that's uh, Richard uh, Trigaskis, the book he wrote about uh, Guadalcanal, because uh, apparently the way that he writes this is... A great portrayal of the horrors of the sort of combat that the Marines faced on um, on Guadalcanal. Again, it's not aviation themed, but it's um, it it sounds naive of me, but I didn't know. Although I knew he was there, I thought he was there, you know, as a reporter, and that he was, you know, sending snippets back to be published in newspapers or magazines or whatever. I didn't actually know he'd written a book uh, until about two weeks ago. So I thought to myself, well, that sounds like a good read. So um, that's another one that I'm going to try and uh, try and get a copy of. I'm assuming given the, the magnitude of, of the name that it will still be available, hopefully.
0: Mm.
1: My B25 kick at the moment, I've just it's, it's never been published here, but Tom uh, McEvely McKee- Cleaver wrote a book about the wing that Joe Heller was in called Bridge Busters, all about tactical mitchells so I'm, I'm trying to find a copy of that that isn't an absolute fortune then has to come from america yeah um, and it's not due out until october and the nice people right. osprey don't have any so there we go but anyways, that, that's it ladies and gentlemen there will be a loss of shows coming up about b25 mitchells in the <laughs> uh, in, in the little while sorry matt you're gonna say something
3: while we're on the subject of books, I can kind of shoehorn it in, which is another, another screen adaptation I'm looking forward to, which I forgot to mention before, is The Shepherd, the adaptation of the Frederick Forsyth novella. Which I think John Travolta was financing and, uh, and directing, I think. But so you know, D.H. Vampire. It's a beautiful book, and the, the I don't know, the, the, certainly the early editions were were kind of really beautifully illustrated with with pencil drawings as well. I imagine it'll just be a shortish film because it's only a it's only a short book. But um, uh, there was a radio adaptation of it a few years ago that was on BBC, and they you know it was a Christmas Eve thing, and it's uh, it's apparently like just a passion project for John Travolta because obviously being a pilot himself, but. But, um he he loves the book apparently so uh, they were doing some filming of that i can't remember where recently somewhere in the uk with an actual vampire so um yeah um it's um, I, fingers I just crossed looked
1: it it was in suffolk and he was in a weather spoon. so oh there, there, well, there we go so right, he was rocking the spoons the authentic yeah. the
3: authentic, uh, authentic british british experience yeah. <laughs>
1: Okay, so we we want to shoehorn a just quick chat about Formula One, but we we started talking about racing pilots in our little group chat earlier, and I ended up in massive rabbit holes. But just to just to give a shout out to to some some great racing pilots that we we were talking about earlier, who who wants to to give people a rabbit hole to go down? Because I've got mine, which I'm going to save to the end.
3: Well, I'll jump in with um, with Chris Staniland, who was um, a ferry test pilot uh, before the war in the 1930s. He was actually killed in a Firefly during the Second World War, Um, but he was uh, that had a a
1: structural failure. I'll just throw that in. It wasn't just Hawker (laughs) had structural failures, people. (laughs)
3: Yeah, but uh, he was a failure of the aircraft. It wasn't a piloting error. Yeah, he was. He was a really accomplished uh, racing driver as well. It was kind of old school stuff. He was uh, mainly racing at Brooklands, uh, so he wasn't particularly sort of on the international circuit. But um, he had a car which it started out as a Grand Prix Alfa Romeo, and being kind of a skilled engineer as well as as well as a driver, kind of updated it and uh, and modified it sort of out of all recognition from the original Alfa Romeo, it was known sort of half jokingly as the multi-union because bits and pieces of various cars had gone into it. And obviously it was a kind of play on auto union, which were around at the time. And it did look rather like a Grand Prix Mercedes by the time he finished with it. Uh, and he sort of set um, set various lap records. I think he set an absolute outer circuit record in it before it was broken by uh, by John Cobb. He certainly set glass records. And the the other fairy test pilot, Duncan Mingus, who I wrote a biography of several years ago, who sort of, he drove with Staniland once um, in his Bentley. Um, and uh, Staniland drove him from one, you know, it's like they were going from one aerodrome to another. And, um he was driving this thing like he was um, like he was on the the, the race circuit and Mingus M- M- basically wrote in a letter that you know he he'd once he'd been driven by Stanley and once he refused to go with him again um, not because he wasn't an excellent driver which you know Mingus M- 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 is at pains to point out that you know he was a really really good driver but it was that he made no allowances for other road users not being of the same quality as he was so um- <coughs> Reading between the lines, I think Mingus was scared after death. He was kind of this kind of typical daredevil in the way he did everything. But he was a really kind of precise display pilot. And Mingus was a, an, an awesome display pilot. You know, he's a really good aerobatic pilot himself. But he, he you know, he was first to admit that, um, that, that, that he wasn't even on Stanley's level as a presentation pilot. And I think those skills were the same skills that I think what we would call car control now um, Staniland had just that total precision. Yeah, so I think it's, it's sort of, you know, his, his career as a racing driver is not terribly well known. Sadly, his car, which survived, survived the war and it was in kind of pretty complete condition, I think the engine had blown, but apart from that, you know, the, the, this kind of unique car that had been built by this sort of um, important figure in British aviation and motor racing, but because it contained... By now, the only two, but it contained part of the chassis rails of an, of, of an Al, original Alfa Romeo which had Grand Prix history. Someone took it and basically junked all the stuff that was that that that, that had been added to it over the years. Took the chassis rails and uh, restored. Uh, a Grand Prix Alfa Romeo. So now we've got this, this kind of these two chassis rails parading around, pre- presenting as an original pre-war Alfa Romeo, which they probably claim had Nuvolari history and things like that, but probably didn't. So his car kind of still exists, and apparently uh, this sort of like the, the multi-union bodywork is still in a garage somewhere. But you know, you know, I'd better stop there because otherwise I'm just going to rant about uh, restorations. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, that's so uh, Chris Staneland, who you, that aspect of him you may not have heard of.
1: Was it Ken? I've got Ken Ellis's test pilot books, and the final entry for stanland was the irrepressible Stanland, The 37-year-old died as he'd lived in the fast lane. There
3: you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and to be honest, have I've heard some stuff about but St- some other stuff about Stanley, which which I'm not allowed to publish.
1: Anyone for you Adam Oh like your- uh, well, obviously I was reminded earlier of
2: uh, Tony Gaze the Australian um, Spitfire pilot at fighter ace who was in F1 and Le Mans. But to be honest with you we you know don't know a great deal about his uh, his wartime experiences but it, it, you know if wikipedia is to be believed had 13 and a half kills to his name so he seems to be a um seemed to be a pretty accomplished fighter pilot. But one, one, in fact, came across early, which I didn't know, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether or not either of you two know this, but do you know who owned the Indianapolis Motor Speedway during World War II? During in- World War II? Interesting. Mm. No, I don't. It was owned during World War II by Eddie Rickenbacker.
0: Ah. Really? Yeah, he
2: bought it after, obviously, after World War I. And uh, he made the decision, apparently, to, to cease racing there during, during the war. Because obviously there, there was a greater need for the materials that went into the cars and obviously the fuel that went into the cars towards the war effort. So there was no racing at the IMS during the, uh, during the war. But yes, it was, it was owned by Rickenbacker at the time. Wow. Yeah. Mm. So he, I mean, you know, you, you make the assumption that he obviously had some sort of uh, passion for motor racing. Otherwise he mm. wouldn't have bought one of the most famous racetracks on the planet, would he?
3: Mm. Wasn't he quite big on the board speedways? Possibly before before the First World War, even. It, yeah, um, mate, yeah, yeah,
2: believe so. Mm, um, yeah, um, it was an interesting, interesting little factoid.
3: Yeah, so, yeah. Mm. It kind, of, kind of reminds me of, you know, the Wings, the 1927 film, about the, you know, World War One combat. But before they go off to France, they're uh, building, a, building a special based on a Ford or something like that, presumably. And, um, you know, early automotive history so oh,
1: cool um because yeah, for for me the the ones that sort of popped into into my head were afp fame very well known pre-war racer photo recon pilot flew tony's a8 810 and crashed trying to get back to to duxford and he in fog at low level and he flew down the wrong railway line and and hit a hedge which in fog when he should have been going off to photograph the um Sub-pens at Wilhelm Salven. Um, but anyways, that's that. But the, the, one, the one I did want to mention, which is remarkable in so many different ways, is Roberta Cowell. So Roberta was the first male-to-female transgender person in the UK but before she transitioned, she was a racing driver, raced at Brooklyn's quite a bit, and was a fighter recon pilot four Squadron. So was with Jumbo, Mudjamar, all of those guys. And she was shot down in EK-49, one of the um, Typhoon FR aircraft in nineteen 19- four i should have it here do do 18th of november 1944 and ended up in stuff Stalag like lift one for for the duration so utterly amazing life definitely look it up I, I i did immediately start looking to see if i could get her autobiography but it's thousands of pounds it was a small small edition run but very very interesting um, lots of articles um about her life and the interesting situation she found herself in in the prison camp but definitely wow. look them- look her up and yeah. fane as well he had, he had he he was a bit of a bo- he was a bit of a boy but there will be more about him as well later but now we're all together we got to we got to do this um we're leaving <laughs> the set the only the only link to the second world war is that you know, adam and i were roasting next to an ex-bomber base <laughs> <laughs> yeah with a yeah. with a red, with a red bull racing employee shouting the C word at Lewis oh, Hamilton oh yeah Thank you so much <laughs> oh yeah what a day that, that
0: was. yeah
1: for yeah. for context people we met up at the British grand prix last year and um sebastian vettel sebastian vettel uh, we'll get we'll get on to him in a minute uh, max verstappen threw himself at lewis hamilton one corner before where we were sitting so if he would mm. had the good grace to wait until chapel beckett's and and all that we would have had it right in front of us but yeah Abu Dhabi. What do you think? Go.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've got to be careful what I say here because as you know, Matt, I am a big Lewis Hamilton fan. A complete farce, broken rules, you know, whatever you want to pluck out of the air of of everything that, that feels wrong about the sport at the moment sort of culminated in in this event, I believe. There was things leading up to it, I will suppose, but it felt very much like the FIA weren't in control necessarily of certain situations in the season. A certain Mr. Massey looked like he'd lost control of a number of races that season, uh, last season. But, you know, who knew that he was going to come up with what he came up with on the um, on the final day? Bullied, I think, is the right word by team principals. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not naive enough to say that, you know, that doesn't involve... Those at the uh, at the Mercedes garage, but certainly on that final day, he made a glaring error, but essentially, um, but essentially, won Max Verstappen his championship in in my opinion. And people, you know, people will bring up, and I saw I saw a video online earlier again, again, people still talk about it all the time that Max Verstappen led more races and that he you know he won more races and missed that, and the other. And unfortunately, that's not how sport works. At the end of the day, whoever's got the most points wins the championship. And up until the final lap of that race, Lewis Hamilton had the most points. And until Mr. Massey came along with his um, odd ruling for that final lap, the the championship was Lewis Hamilton's. And that is how sport works. You can't, you know, you don't win sport on statistics. You know, you win it on the important things. And, And Lewis Hamilton had done what he needed to do that day, I believe, to win the title. I believe the last four races of that season were, were well, Lewis at his very best. He was at his very best on in that race as well. Um, he was putting in excellent lap times on very old tyres. But unfortunately, you know, somebody expected him to uh, fight off, uh, you know, fight off Max on the same tyres whilst Max had brand new shoes on. So it's... Uh, yeah, fast is probably the right word in in my mind.
3: I, yeah, I agree. Um, and I think it's... Yes, the race itself was a farce, but then the 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 subsequent cover up and attempts to justify it were worse. Because I think it's if someone screws up, and if someone screws up that badly, you know who hasn't screwed up? I've made some horrendous mistakes in my life. I'm sure we all have. But you know the mark of kind of the, the the test that that applies to us is to is to admit to it and try and put it right. And I know with the FIA, as far as the FIA and Formula One were concerned, there was no doubt an awful lot of money and other stuff, and it would have opened one hell of a can of worms if they had afterwards said, yeah, we screwed this up. It, was, it should not have happened in the way it did, but we're going to try and put it right. And what trying to put it right would have looked like, I have no idea. And we are probably still be in court now if that had happened. But I think, you know, even for Massey on an individual level to come out, or now he's not in that job anymore, what's stopping Massey saying, actually, you know, the pressure got to me. I shouldn't have done... Well, having said that, I suppose if, he's, if he says that, then, you know, he opens up the, the FIA to, uh, to to legal challenges and all that kind of stuff. And this is probably where it gets more complicated. But I just I just think it was that's the thing that really hurt for me was not yeah i mean it, it was i was screaming at the screen and and it was a it was a nonsensical application of of the rules and quite why he thought he had the authority to do what he did at the time mm. um to kind of take one thing that he could authorize and but only partially and yeah anyway it was just um
2: well, there were signs that um, that you know that he had the potential to to maybe make that sort of decision. Obviously, the, the Grand Prix previous at Jeddah, mm, you know, yeah. he tried to make the deal with Red Bull, you know, and it's oh, you know, yeah, you know, there's either a rule or there's not. You know, you don't make deals yeah. with teams, you know, so it's um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, like you say, yeah, saying,
3: and I, and I think obviously you've got then you sort of go back to the the whatever deal was cooked up with Ferrari over their engines and things like that. And it's, it's like, and then you, and the whole, the way, the whole way formula one is set up now with the the strategy group, which involves the teams. And I think maybe it's, maybe we need a, a situation in which the teams are the organizations that participate in the sport and the rule makers are the people who set the rules. And, you know, formula one is the body that organizes it. And there is, there are sort of actual, delineations between those organizations and you know everything's written in concrete terms that everyone understands and, and there can be no confusion but you know it's as i think it was frank williams that said it's uh, it's a business all times apart from two hours every other sunday i don't want to be conspiracist about it and and i don't think there was a conspiracy as such but i think there was a lot of pressure for there to be a different winner than
0: yeah. uh,
3: lewis hamilton yeah, and one of the things that I've said really since Max has been in the sport is that they they go easy on him because he's box office and Max drives in a way that I don't think should be allowed and he's been allowed to get away with driving in that way and he's been enabled in that by both by his team and by the the governing bodies because he has a big fan base because there are a lot of people excited by him because he's You know, he has helped bring new audiences into Formula One and things like that. And I think we've got to the point now where we have because people have turned a blind eye to the way that he drives. And um, it's that more than anything else that sort of put me off Formula One. You know, I still watch it. I still follow it. But I don't have the same enthusiasm I did over it even a couple of years ago, really.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm finding it very difficult to get infused over new cars, to be honest with you. Yeah. They look very clumsy on the track. You know, it's evident that, you know, a certain few teams have applied the new regs pretty well. Other teams haven't. I don't really think it's made the racing any different to what it was before. Personally, you're still looking at, at cars only really making overtakes in DRS zones, for example, and... You know, it's not, there's not a great deal, you know, we, we were, they made it sound like it was going to become like a touring car, basically, and it's, it hasn't really, has it. And and to be honest with you, I, would, I wouldn't sue to watch a touring car race, you know, but it's almost illegal in a touring car race not to pull in at the end of the race wearing somebody else's paintwork, you know, and that's, that's what racing should be in my mind, as long as it's within, you know, the parameters of, uh, you know, what is safe and what, what the regulations are, then you know, it makes for great racing. But, you know, I find it funny you made a comment about, you know, the, the application of regulations and, you know, how seriously the FIA take them. And, and at the moment they're, they're taking regulations over wearing the right sort of pants and not wearing jewellery in a car. Oh my God. You know, yeah. very, very seriously. But 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 apparently it'd be, you know, when it comes to actual regulations during a race, they can be flexible with those, which I, I find very contradictory. <laughs>
3: It's yeah, I mean, the new cars, I think I was quite excited about those sort of when they were introduced. And I think, you know, the bringing more ground effects in. And I actually think Ross Braun had had a decent approach. I was you know pleased when he took over the sort of technical side of it. And there was a talk that he did here at um, at Southampton Uni just before he took on that role. Where he was talking about his approach as a team boss, or as you know, as a technical as a technical boss for a team, and how he would apply. It. Because you know, I think it was at the time it was a sort of a fairly open secret that he was um, he was certainly in the running for that role. So he was talking about how he would act, yeah, you know, what he would do if he was given that role, you know, and and it's very much more systematic than than things had been and we had those really ridiculous 2017 regulations where i think it was you know tail end of bernie era and he decided the cars aren't fast enough they need to be faster and not actually pay any attention to the racing whatsoever so they just bolted more downforce on them Mm. uh and given them bigger tires And, and i think it's it's you know we have to go back to the fact that actually the racing was quite considerably better in in sort of you know 20 up to 2016. Um, yeah. And people complained about the overtaking then, but you know it got significantly worse when they they brought in those the wider cars and the, the bigger wings and, and, and all that stuff. And then you, actually, the, really the whole time I've been interested in Formula One, going back to the eighties, people have been complaining about not enough overtaking. And I think maybe people kind of needed to calm down at times because it's just it sort of feels like everything they've done has made it worse ever since. You know, certainly I remember the regulations back in. In '89, we supposed to to improve the racing over '88. I suppose you know you had the situation in '88 where it was McLaren dominated everything, and it wasn't like it wasn't an exciting season. The cars are too big and hit too heavy. Uh, I don't think you'd struggle to find anyone who disagreed with that um, that that viewpoint. And it's just, uh... but having said that, I remember the Indy cars, the sort of the the, the Indy cars of the mid '90s. They were big, heavy cars, and yet they managed to race well on street circuits. Mm. So. They need to make the car smaller and lighter. They need to be more nimble. You know, a racing car, the, the ultimate racing car, which Formula One is kind of supposed to be, it doesn't necessarily have to be the fastest. They've always been faster series than Formula One, but it kind of feels like it has to be the ultimate in in when you take everything in the round. And it feels like they should be more nimble, more agile, cars that you can kind of race with and, and these kind of big lumbering things. And also, it just sort of shows that the fact that they've, the tires again it's always seems to be the tires seem to be the um the limiting factor like in miami it was like yeah it's great on the racing line but we've kind of spent millions and millions on these new aerodynamic regulations that make the cars easy to follow each other but then you give them only one racing line you can't move off that racing line no matter what the aerodynamics are doing so it's like come on (laughs) these people are supposed to be clever
1: (laughs) yeah I, I think I think my 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 biggest gripe with the new regs is they bottled it slightly on the ground effects. If you're gonna allow ground effects curved undersides, go whole hog, put the skirts on them, and then s- strip off the arrow on the top on the top. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's it th- there was always going to be as soon as they had open sided bottoms to I'm getting rude now. Open sided bottoms, porpoising was gonna happen. It was going to hit somebody badly and it was going to hit someone else less. And I was sitting all here as Lewis fans. But I I think as soon as they announced that, it was like, well, that's not really going to do enough. And I just think it's, cars look cool. It's nice to see that they all look quite different to a degree. Um, I think the Ferrari looks really cool, actually. But Mm. and it's nice to see them winning. I really wish Carlos would figure out how to keep it out of the wall. Um, (laughs) But um, you know, it's it is really interesting. But we just to wrap up, we we were talking about something earlier. It's been cropping up more recently with with Seb's struggles. Is this Red Bull's greatest racer? It's obviously Sebastian Vettel, Mm. but. Uh, have we reached this point that we are so enamored with, say, the the immediacy of things like Drive to Survive, social media, which is Im- immediate, that we are forgetting just how good, you know, several, forgetting, you know, we think of Lewis and his seven titles, eight with a star next to them, and we forget the years that he battled Seven the was it it uh, 2017, 2018. Granted, Freud had a trick engine but we won't get into that but he was incredible why is it am i thinking right that we our memories have gotten so short for the 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 general fan base or is or is it something else There, there
3: is always a recency bias always a recency bias when i worked at autosport and it was during the schumacher era and it was just at the beginning of his ferrari dominance so many people back then considered schumacher to be like absolutely unquestionably the greatest of all time and i completely disagreed with that then and i disagree with it now but now if you look at the sort of lists of you know people talk about hamilton a lot and people starting to talk about max as the greatest ever which is a complete joke if you ask me utter utter joke in so many ways i don't actually even think he's all that good but anyway so it's it's a few i think there's always this kind of zone that's a few years ago we're not kind of far enough back to be classic yet, but it's long enough ago that people have kind of forgotten the immediate sense of it. and I think Seb's four titles kind of fall into that zone at the moment. that's my theory because because th- his his mastery of those particular cars, particularly with the blown diffuser, was just unparalleled. I don't think anyone you know Hamilton, I think you'd have to say from the hybrid era on was the was the better driver and he has got better and better and better and his mastery of those cars is something to behold but Seb in that in that particular era the you know 2010 to the mid 2010s just nobody could touch him for the way he could drive those cars and get a lap time out of them mm. that's my that's my take anyway
2: yeah, I mean, I think that there's an element of, um, of the way that F1 fandom's changed over the last few years because it's obviously become a more popular sport. You know, social media means that the way that people talk about races and talk about drivers is becoming more like, you know, how football fans talk about teams. A lot of it's very toxic, I find, and it makes me sad to think that, that F1 is, is going in that direction. And I feel like there's an awful lot of fans, and I'm not being judgmental towards those that are new to, that are new to the sport, but I just don't think they've got a great grasp of sort of F1 history. And it goes back to what you said, Matt, but they don't, you know, they probably didn't see Seb race and they probably don't care enough to, to go back and look at actually how good he was. They just see, like you say, who's, you know, somebody who's popular now or someone who they, they perceive to be better now. But... Seb was annoyingly good. I used to really hate him. Mm-hmm. Um, Same. Um, I, I really like him now because he's mellowed a lot and obviously he's doing great things outside of the sport. I believe he's on, is he on questing time? Is it tonight or is it tomorrow? It's tonight, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah which right, I find yeah. weird, but good on him. You know, I think that's great. So I used to hate him, but, you know, it was, it, was, it was hatred born out of whether I was willing to admit it or not, the fact that he was just that good. Mm. You know, and there was... You know, I, I did I did want to see other drivers win, but you know, at the same time, you can't ignore the fact that he was, you know, a seriously, seriously good driver.
1: Was that counter yeah, I mean, my, my, driving style, wasn't it, of, of keeping his foot on the gas when he really shouldn't have had the, his foot on the gas to, to, to keep the, the fusel planted? That was just mind-blowing.
3: Yeah, I mean he's 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 such an intelligent driver, um, in terms of technically, I think uh and while i don't think he was ever the best wheel-to-wheel racer he kind of didn't need to be he he was sort of in the, that sort of jim clark frame of of being able to race off into the distance and not uh, not need to do the wheel-to-wheel stuff but i mean i didn't like him at the time because i mean i was a bit of a webber fan i have to say i've you know, interviewed Weber a few times when I was um, when I was on the magazine and before then and uh, I liked his approach and uh, he to me he was more of a kind of character I could get to like so it was sort of with his kind of inter team battle intra team battle with with Seb and and I didn't you know I thought. In some ways, I think Seb's behaviour sometimes crossed a line within the team and Red Bull kind of enabled him in the way that they're doing with Max now. But since then, I think it's lovely to see someone grow up in the sport like that and actually, um, you know, really see their character grow and develop and, and become a kind of really, really good man, I think. Yeah, I just wish he was in a competitive car and, uh, and, and could, could sort of show what, what I believe he's still capable
1: of for sure right Sophie's reminding Adam that it's getting late no she was uh, she was actually asking me which
2: F1 driver we were talking about
1: oh she, um, she, she, <laughs> she, she yeah, can she uh, can join uh, in let's, let's I think feet.
2: she was I, I think she was getting very worried that um, that Matt was talking about Max for a second then so I was just, I was just reassuring her <laughs> I was just reassuring her that because because um, you know as you, as you know Matt you experienced the the um, the the intense levels of love that my wife has for lewis hamilton who she would leave me for
3: in a heartbeat
2: for yeah yeah so she has <laughs> this, she has this intense oh, she, hatred. She,
3: she she can be assured that no good word about max verstappen will ever pass my lips
2: um, <laughs> yeah that's um that's very much the case in this
3: household i have to say
1: yes, yeah I, I i think out of the four of us that were at that race last year she was the one who was more likely to give that rbr employee a slap for <laughs> yes <laughs> then, yeah um, i mean we're,
2: we're we're planning on sitting in the same place this year and i'm very much hopeful that, that guy won't be there yes yeah, so that, that's,
1: that's a that's a good spot we won't say where it is because you know we, yeah it is a good it, spot it, it, yeah. it's a good spot anyways gentlemen this this has been a real giggle we've been going on far too long and who 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 knows maybe we should maybe we should do, the, do this again but put the yeah. aviation world to rights and uh I get things out. So Adam Berry, Matthew Willis, thank you so much. And uh, we'll have you back individually for the Beast because we got to do the Duncan, the Duncan chat as well, Matt, haven't we? So mm-hmm. um, anyways, thank you so much. And we'll be back soon. What I have lined up next, I'm not sure. It's probably going to be B25 Mitchell related because yes, yeah, living rent free in my head at the moment, folks. So we'll, um, we'll do some of that. But gents, thank you very much.